we're starting a series, all right? So we've did, we did our Read Your Bible series last, um, last month, last five weeks, and hopefully you enjoyed that. Hopefully you got to read through Mark and, and celebrated Easter with us in some way, shape, and form. Um, but we decided that we wanted to talk about some things uh, kind of after Easter. We were going to take the spring to still kind of talk about some things that were pretty fresh in terms of topics in our culture and today's issues, cultural pressures, um, and what the Bible has to say, and maybe what the church has to say to talk about it. However, uh, we struggled a little bit with, with what to call it. Now, I, uh, some of our staff team basically uh, came up with this and said, look, uh, what we're talking about are the things that feel kind of out of bounds. They feel out of line with what the church usually talks about or what the ch- people even think the church should be uh, talking about, talking about the things we're not allowed uh, to talk about. And, and, and where I, w- I wanted to just go ahead and set you up for right now, for where we're going in the series, okay, maybe not all today, I can't cover everything in a 30 to 40 minute time window. So I want to make sure everybody gets, here's us up front, like if you hear something that I say or don't say, uh, and your undergarments get all twisted, you know, I mean, just listen, just, just do me a favor, wait till the series is done or ask your questions um, don't presume anything. Don't assume anything uh, that I mean something. If I said something, just you can feel free to ask. Um, but this is this is a big series, and there's a lot to talk about. And the question is, why would we talk about it? Okay, so here's just a highlight of a few. Why would we talk about abortion, um, critical race theory, gender identity, Christian nationalism, parental rights and education, and pansexuality, just to name a few? Why would we talk about this? And you may come from a place that thinks maybe the church shouldn't. Maybe the church shouldn't talk about these things. There is a cultural belief that the church shouldn't in, you know, interfere with some of these things that are political or social in there. Where I struggle the most is that if you were to, you know, uh, Barna, uh, Barna Group, we'll share some more uh, statistics today and next, uh, next few weeks from some of the research that's been out there, but about nine, a little more than nine out of 10 pastors believe that the Bible actually does speak to kind of the relevance of today's issues. The Bible actually does talk about the, you know, the today's issues and modern issues and, and is relevant to address them. But the latest poll says about 72% of pastors refuse to talk about them. 72% refuse to address it in sermons. Refuse to, why? Because of such a divide. Socially, politically, there's so, there's so much tension around these topics. Why? Because, because if we do not align with culture, we are prejudiced, bigots, racist, transphobic, white privileged, anti-woke, homophobic idiots who don't know anything. Am I right? So this is the problem. It doesn't really matter what the issue is. You may not be all of these things. But wherever you do not align with maybe what is sort of a considered right now a cultural norm, then you're the problem, and we're the problem. So we don't talk about it. Not just pastors. We're talking about Christians, the church. We don't feel like we're allowed to talk about it. But we disagree. We disagree. We believe the church should talk about it. We believe Christians have a voice. We believe the Word of God does say something about how we live in this modern world, in this modern times. We disagree with the uh, consensus, if you will, that we shouldn't just talk about it. We're really not allowed to. 
And listen, you're going to have to get on board with this idea of disagreeing, because if I was going to call the series anything, I would call it just disagreeing. How do we disagree? Because we disagree. There's going to be a lot of things. You may disagree with me, and that's okay. We'll talk about that a little later, too. You may disagree with me. You may disagree with the approach that I take. You may disagree with what the Word of God says in terms of how I'm going to teach it. You might disagree, but I'm just here to tell you that we're going to come to a place of disagreement at some point in this series, whether it's you disagreeing with me or you understanding the need to disagree with what might be the popular opinion. You have to get comfortable with that because it's a big, big part of our theme. Now, I have to do a little bit of teaching, okay, this morning, just, you know, for those of you that sort of know my style, uh, before I jump into sort of our theme verse and the scripture that we're going to be teaching today, I do have to spend a little bit of time, three to five minutes at the most, talking about where we are as a country, as a church, as a, as a civilization right now in terms of the Western culture of the church. I have to talk about where we are and how we got here. Okay, and just teach a little bit on this. I'm going to give you several statistics, several studies that have been done, but I want to just kind of bring us at least to the same page as to why we are where we are. Why is it something that we, why have we gotten to this point with a loss of civil dis, discord and, and, and discussion, especially within the church, especially within Christians? So here's why. This is done from the Barna Group. This, the, today I'm going to share some stuff from Barna. Next week I'll share some stuff from Pew Research, but it's all very much the same. They just have a little bit of a deeper dive. 51% of American adults, all American, over half of all American adults, everybody with me? Over half, just a little over half, say that they have a biblical worldview. Now you might be asking, well, yeah, I, I, you might think that. I have a biblical worldview. You, might, you, you may not even know what a biblical worldview is, and we're going to talk about that. But the problem is, is that out of the half that say they have a biblical worldview, when asked questions about their worldview, they came back and said, well, only 6% actually hold to a biblical worldview. Over a half believe they have one, but only about 6% of those polled actually hold to that. Now, what is a biblical worldview? Let me just go through. You may want to take a quick screen capture of this or on your computer or take a picture of it. This is just some basic characteristics, okay? I mean, they're basic in terms of we know the Bible talks about them, right? The Bible itself, truth, morality, God, creation, and history, right? Sin, salvation, and our relationship with God. Human nature, our behavior, and our relationships with, with each other. Faith, our values, and our purpose. Just those five quick categories, those are pretty basic. Most people in the room would nod your head and agree, the Bible teaches on this, right? The Bible talks about these things, which is why it says, hey, this is a biblical worldview. The problem is you actually have to know what the Bible says about these things, you have to read it and actually know what the Bible says about it. And not only do you have to know what it says, you have to believe it's true in order to apply it to your life, in order to actually live it out. And here's the problem we find ourselves in. This is a quote from the, the, the State of the Church in 2020, written by the Barna Group. Other worldviews influence Christian beliefs about the way the world is, and how it ought to be. 
Meaning that when they did these researches, when they talked with Christians, they said, look, there are other worldviews influencing what Christians say ought to be happening, should be happening. Everybody with me on that? You know, you know those things you, in your mind that all of a sudden rise up in you, you're like, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't be that way. That, you know, they ought to know better than that. You, you guys with me now? Yeah. There are, when we say those things, it's basically saying, that, look, there's a majority of Christians out there, depending on the statement, that are actually getting those oughts, to, you know, get it, re, understanding the world as it is, not in light of scripture, but in light of other worldviews. And here's the top four that show up. The top four that show up, and I'll talk about the eight, the eight times there, is new spiritualism or new spirituality, which is basically a way of saying people love being spiritual. They like the spiritual feels. They like the spiritual nature of things, uh, but they're pretty positive on that, but they're pretty negative on institutions, right? So they like spirituality, but not necessarily organized religion or, or institutions. Postmodernism is uh, basically relativism. It's, it's humanism a little bit, but it's primarily removing the objectivity of things, making morality and, and all these things about the context of what's true and not true based on who you are and your experiences, and that's what postmodernism is. Marxism is on there, and that's primarily, understand, this is primarily the socialist ideology around economics, it's around economics and, e and equity and equality. And most Marxism really believes that most religions are inherently dangerous. Okay, and we're not talking about just Christianity. We're talking about most religions, period, are inherently actually dangerous to civilization. And secularism is primarily humanism, right? It's a scientific explanatory sort of framework to things. All meaning and purpose can be explained. All things are driven by effort and materialism. That's really where the sort of the secularistic worldviews come in. Now, eight times, I had to show this because I want you to understand, it's not that it's, not that it's across the board, and it's evenly across the board. I mean, there are, it's, you're, you're, if you're a millennial or you're in that younger generation, Z, um, you are eight times more likely to have some of these views than maybe Gen Xers or boomers or even elders in the room. Is everybody with me? It doesn't mean you're, 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 you're uh, exempt from it. It just means that the younger generation is a larger percentage of this conversation, eight times more likely to believe and have influence from these other pluralism and, and worldist, world, uh, worldly, uh, sorry, worldviews and mixing it with their Christianity. And here's some of the examples, just so you can see. Now understand, this is, this is the percentage of Christians. Everybody with me? This is, not just, this is not just across the board. These are Christian people, identifying Christians, answering these questions about their worldview. 72% believe that people are basically good. 72% of Christians in this poll believe that people are basically good, which means you haven't read the Bible. 60, I can't preach too hard yet. I got too much stuff to cover. Okay. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. But as long as you're a person of faith, that that matters actually more than the object 
of faith. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. That's over half of the Christians polled that say they have a biblical worldview, believe some way, shape, and form, there's loopholes and ways around your morality that God will accept you and your righteousness comes from your morality. 40%, 47% believe in karma. You guys know what that is, right? <clears throat> karma, you put good things in, you get good things out. You put bad things in, what? You get bad things out. Yeah. Okay. Now understand, there's biblical, there's biblical models for sowing and reaping. There, there are things like that, but true karma, okay? <clears throat> 23% believe right or wrong depends on individual belief, which goes back to that relativism we talked about. And 15% actually answer questions based on, again, sort of that Marxist view that governments or some controlling entity should control resources to ensure equity and equality. These are Christians. I believe there should be an external, external source of some way, shape, and form so that things can be fair and just in society. Now, again, I don't, I don't care where you stand on all of these things, but you need to see the cracks in what people think is a biblical worldview, but who actually are accepting all of this influence from other worldviews. And this is where Paul warned the church in Rome. He warned the church in Rome, in the seat of the Roman Empire. He said, I do not want you to conform to the pattern, to the mold of this world, but I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Only then will you be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. I actually, you heard me say this before, one of my favorite um, books to read, The Message Paraphrase, which is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. One of my favorite books to read is Romans, because I love some of the paraphrase and the way in which he states things. I'm going to read this very short passage. This is Romans 2 as well. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you, quickly respond to it, talking about our worship. And then he goes on to say, and like the culture around you, always dragging you down to their level of immaturity. Can you at least be honest about that? That when you have to get into the fight or the arguments or the conversations that tend to be the cultural norms of society, it sort of feels like it's constantly dragging you down to sort of its level. Doesn't feel higher. Doesn't feel more holy or more, or more righteous. Or, no, it's always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. It says God brings out the best out of you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring the best out of you and develop well-formed maturity in you. That having, having this life that fits so easily and comfortably in the mold and the conformity of culture is actually considered immaturity. And realizing what transformation means, realizing what transformation is in terms of God changing you from the inside out. It starts first in here, and then it comes out in what you believe. It comes out in what you say. It comes out in what you do. It comes out in your convictions. It comes out in your behavior. Changes start in here. 
So they cannot conform to the mold that easily because it's transformed. It renews the way you think. It changes the way you think. That's what Paul warned them. But there is a battle of truth in our culture, and we all know this. As a matter of fact, if you've been in journey for a while, if you're new, I'm going to give you a quick recap. But if you've been in journey for a while, you've heard me say these words to you, talking about relative truth in our culture. You have a war between my truth and your truth, right? Okay? My truth, I look amazing in these pants. I do. See? Me and Clay's truth and Dan. Your truth might be different. It's fine. And it's a very, with me, it's a very relativism and relativistic approach to truth. It's my truth versus your truth. Here's the problem. What I have seen in the last decade, slow shift, slow sidestep, but it's becoming more prevalent, more prevalent today, especially because of social media, is we're dehumanizing our, our my truth versus your truth because everybody knows to a certain degree once you walk down that path, it really is subjective and it's all about you. It's all about you and it's all about your truth versus my truth and it's just an argument between us. And here's the sidestep our culture's made. Tell me if you don't recognize this. We have sidestepped this to justify it by saying, well, though it's my truth source versus your truth source. And you know what happens when we shift, we sidestep to my truth source versus your truth source? This is where all the words come out like mainstream and misinformation and censorship and, and misunderstandings. You didn't hear that correct. He didn't mean that. You know what happens when we take this sidestep? Not only does it dehumanize it, it takes away from you and me to try to justify the relativism in our culture. Our truth sources also means that we are not accountable or responsible which is why you don't hear anybody making apologies anymore. Because I'm not the one who was wrong. My truth source was wrong. And they weren't really wrong. They just had this opinion, and now they have this opinion. Everybody with me? My truth source can be anything. It can be mainstream. It can be a channel. It could be a person I follow. It could be this. I mean, did we not see this in, in COVID? Well, my truth source says masks are saving everybody. Well, my truth source says masks are stupid, and you're stupid for believing it. I mean, did we not see this just recently in the last couple of years? Understand the shift in culture is to justify the relativism and the relativistic worldview. So now I'm not really even the one accountable for it. My truth source is. It's my truth source. And it's, if it changes, it changes. But it's not me. That's it. Now, the great news is, let me just go ahead and bring us in here. The great news is that we have a truth source, right? We have a truth source. It's the Word of God, and it's the same today and yesterday and forever. It does not change. Oh, we face current challenges, yeah, but these, even the challenges we face today are not new challenges, and we have a truth source that never changes. Matter of fact, this is our theme verse for the series. We'll start every week with this passage, just so that we understand where the dividing line is in terms of where we are and how we are going to approach some of the heavy, hot button, you know, hot topic, you know, make your, make your skin crawl when I talk about it, issues. 
all scripture is inspired, what's those two words? Say them out loud. By God. I believe it's KJV is God breathed. I believe NIV is, is written and inspired. And it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is, what's the word? Wrong in our lives. See, what, does, where we're, what, what, is it that, what is it in terms of that our true source does? Well, our true source teaches us what is right. And it shows us what is wrong. As a matter of fact, it corrects us when we're wrong. That's what it's supposed to do. A truth source is supposed to show you when the way you approach something or think about something is wrong. And then it, and it teaches us, gives us the tools, gives us steps, gives us, empowers us to do what's right. Matter of fact, that's the next phrase. It says, God uses it. It has a purpose. Scripture has a purpose to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. He wants you to be prepared and equipped to handle whatever. Listen, we were born in this time. We are living in this age, in this time. That was not a mistake. Everybody with me? It's not a mistake. God wanted you right now, in this moment, in this time in history, here with your truth source, which is his truth, to be able to approach and have conversation and engage and do every good work he's called you to do. That's going to, that. That's going to be the dividing line over the next several weeks. Now, very quickly again, I want to kind of just give you one last little piece before we dive into a couple of scriptures, but um, what you see people arguing about the most, I want to just help you understand this, when it comes to some of these topics, when it comes to some of these issues, really kind of centers around two things, our convictions and our opinions. Now, there's a few catchy bumper sticker phrases about convictions and opinions, and I know you guys all know those. But the reality is, is that what most people you see argue and fuss about are their opinions, okay? It's, it's their opinions. Their opinions change. Sometimes their opinion changes with, with age and time and perspective. Sometimes it changes with information. Sometimes it changes because something spiritually does change for them, or it grows, or, or it manifests, and it, and it develops. Those are your opinions, but convictions are a little bit different, right? So here we go. Opinions, really, they are generally held or personally held views. Generally held, meaning that it's kind of a consensus, you know, with majority. You would make the statement like, well, everybody believes that. Well, everybody knows this to be true. Or it's personal, in my personal opinion. What's the short form of that, girls? I am, in my, in my opinion, IMO, you know, short-term text. I'm learning slowly. And it's a view held, I'll go back, sorry, I didn't finish reading it. It's a view held that they're going to argue and debate over, right? That's, that tends to be what opinions are. See, the reason opinions are, are usually argued about so emphatically is because you don't actually have enough skin to worry about whether you win or lose. Anybody know those people that love to argue and they don't actually care? You, you guys know what I'm talking about? They, lo they love to argue. You're just like, I'm that person. Uh, they don't actually care. Like, it's kind of like they just like to argue. They like to have conversation. They like to be contrary. But sometimes it's, and most of the time, it's about opinion. 
It's about their, like, ah, this is just the way I see it. This is just the way I view it. But convictions, and I understand the difference here. Convictions are things you stand firm in. There's confidence in a belief or beliefs regardless of your disagreement and regardless of consequences. Your convictions are things you stand in regardless of whether people agree with you or not. And you might think that's like a strongly held opinion, which is fine. The deeper the root, the greater the conviction. But, but they do that regardless of consequences. Like they, they hold firm in those things regardless of consequences and regardless of agreement. And I want you to hear this, that you don't hear good or bad. Like, don't hear opinions bad, convictions are good, because convictions can be horrible. Like, people can have horrible convictions, all right? The Nazi regime was built on horrible convictions, right? The Roman Empire was built on horrible convictions. Some of the worst things in history have happened because of people who had horrible, horrible, deep-seated convictions. So don't hear, don't hear opinions and convictions as bad or good. Matter of fact, I love this is Winston Churchill around World War II, he said, one man with conviction will overwhelm a hundred who only have an opinion. One man with a conviction will overwhelm a hundred who only have an opinion. And God, I believe God does want us to move in our life when it comes to the source of truth, when it comes to his word. He wants us to move into place of conviction, not just to hover in a generally consensusly held view or opinion that can change. And here's a passage Paul talked to the church in Ephesus about it. And again, he, he uses these words again, highlighting it as a, as a place of immaturity versus a place of maturity. He says, you will no longer be immature like children. What does that mean? Well, you're not going to be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Your opinion's not going to consistently change based on what somebody said, what somebody said it said, what somebody said it meant. That your opinion doesn't constantly go back and forth. James, the brother Jesus would say, would actually give the example of like, you know, being tossed about on a wave, flip-flopping around. You guys heard that term, right? Flip-flopping. What you will not be influenced when people try to trick you or trick us with lies so clever, they sound like the truth. And man, this is such a big deal, guys. This is one of the reasons those worldviews kind of creep in and hijack Christianity. is because they're, they're so clever, they sound about right. They're so clever, they at least feel right in the shoulds and the oughts in our life. But they're not true. They don't come from the truth source that we believe in followers of Christ, that dividing line. And he goes on to say this, instead we'll speak the truth in love, right? Growing every way more and more like who? Like Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body of the church. See, he paints immaturity as, this, as, these, as the people who kind of just sit on their opinions and they just sort of surface around on how they view things and generally held views and maybe personally held views, but they flop around. He says, no, I want you to be mature. I want you to understand it to such a degree that you can speak about it 
And you can speak truth in love. You can speak truth in love to become more and more like Jesus. So here's the conflict and here's the tension that we know we're going to be addressing in this series, right? How do we speak truth in love and yet stand in disagreement? How do we do it? When your kid comes home and introduces you to his non-binary friend, how do you speak truth in love and yet maybe stand in disagreement? What about when a family member tries to tell you that they don't need to go to church to be okay with God, right? Or your kid's school decides to teach, start teaching some anti-racist principles, which we would all be in favor of, so the problem is it's resulting in shadow and reverse racism. And if you don't know what those two things are, come back in the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about them. They're resulting in shadow and reverse racism. They're not doing exactly what we would want it to do. When your coworker talks to you about the Orthodox Christian Church in Russia that is actually praising and affirming Russia's invasion into Ukraine and using words similar to what the church of the U.S. did in World War II, talking about their, soul, their dead soldiers coming home as a sacrifice for what God wants them to do, and your coworker wants to know how you could possibly be a Christian. When the Christian nationalists in in Russia are actually saying these things and believe these things. How do you speak truth and love and stand in disagreement when the state that you're living in, the state that you live in, you know there's a law being proposed that if a child is born early, premature, that you would still have up to 28 days to abort that child. You know this. You know this, how do you, how do you stand in disagreement on the things that you know stand in opposition to your truth source and yet speak that truth in love, growing every day more and more and more like Jesus? Now, here's the problem with disagreement. We all know this. I'm just gonna, this is all stuff we know. This is the, this is the bumper sticker advice, Right? You guys heard this before? Well, let's just agree to disagree, right? Let's just agree. Let's just keep moving like it doesn't matter, and we'll just agree to not agree about it. Here's what it really means, and you know this is true. Let's agree to disagree and quietly resent each other. Because <laughs> that's what it means. Let's agree to disagree, but quietly resent each other. No, the problem is that in our culture, and we know this is true, Disagreement is condemnation. Disagreement is condemnation. Agreement is affirmation. You have to agree and affirm me. But if you disagree, then you judge, you condemn, and that's the way it is. That's just the way it is. It's a very binary system. That's it. So we, we struggle to disagree because we, and I'm talking about us, Christians, okay, Christians in this century, we struggle because, listen, disagreeing and condemning kind of go hand in hand for the church too, all right? This isn't a brand new, cancel culture is not a brand new thing, guys. It's been around for a while. It's been around during my lifetime, 
all right? And Christians, let's just be honest, we're usually at the front of the line, all right? We are usually, we didn't create cancel culture, but we sure like it when it's our thing to do, all right? Like when I was a kid growing up in Florida, late 80s, early 90s, it was the first time Disney held their celebration weekend, okay? It was a celebration weekend, and it was a pride weekend. It was the first time they had ever done it. You think Disney's like not-so-secret gay agenda is like a recent thing? It's not. It was the first time they did it, and I was a part of churches that just lost their minds in terms of cancel culture. Let's drive them out of Florida. Let's shut them down. You think that's new? It's not new. Listen, when I was a kid, listen, churches, Christians didn't want, my parents couldn't even tell people they took me to see Star Wars. Okay, because the force was too much like magic, and Christians boycotted it. You know, there were Christians, when I was being raised, there were Christians using the word, don't be unequally yoked, to condemn interracial relationships. Did you know that? Okay, Christians are, listen, Christians don't hate cancel culture unless it's being used against them. We're the first ones to condemn. We're the first ones to say, you did bad, you deserve bad. You get what you get. And yet, that's not at all, again, a biblical world view. Matter of fact, and, and this is one I've read before, you, maybe even just a few months ago, hopefully you remember this, but I share this from Romans. This is part of the, just in terms of how we relate to one another as well, but Paul again to the church in Rome. <laughs> so the, if you don't know how abhorrent and deplorable the Roman Empire was, then you haven't done enough history. Like you haven't, you haven't understood what the Christians in that time were, were facing culturally. It's honestly, in some cases, it's nothing like today. It's worse. And here's Paul writing to the church, and he says, look, you may think you can condemn such people. Like Paul knew, this is again, this is not a new thing for the Western church. Paul's like, you, listen, I know what you're thinking. He did all Romans 1 talking about these people. What kind of people was he talking about, Paul? Okay, well, here's a quick synopsis, right? The wicked, the sinful, the idol worshipers, men who are with women, women with who are with women, men who are with men, the greedy, the hateful, the envious, the murdery, the quarreling, the liars, the malice, the gossip, the betrayal, the insolent, the proud, the arrogant, the foolish, the heartless, the dishonest, the merciless, the, the ones who disobeyed their parents, the ones who created new ways of sinning, which we're actually going to talk about that in terms of a modern example of that in a few weeks. And they encouraged others to do it. Those people. He says, look, I know what you're thinking as he writes the church. And he just, he just wrote the laundry list of everybody and everything that's wrong and he said, hey, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you can condemn such people. And he goes on to say, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse. He's talking to Christians. See, you guys know better. And you have no excuse when you say they're wicked and should be punished. You get what you get. You're condemning yourself. For who judge others, for you who judge others with the same things. 
Uh, keep going. We know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Why? Because the biblical worldview is that everybody's going to be held accountable. Do you know that? Do you believe that's true? That God is going to deal with every single person. No one gets away. No one gets away scot-free. Everybody just nod your head if you, you believe that or at least want to. Okay? No one gets away with it. Everybody hear me. That's a biblical worldview. Nobody gets away with it. We, every man, woman, and child is going to be held accountable. And he says, but since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you're going to avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? And we would argue in our American categorialistic sinful culture, well, I don't do the same things. <laughs> right? Well, that's not what Paul's talking about. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? We're talking about how do we stand in disagreement with people who stand in absolute opposition to our source of truth? How, how do we do that and still speak in love? How in the world do we do this when they stand in, I mean, they are not, they're just not like passively opposition. They're aggressively opposing the word of God. And Paul says, well, how does God treat you who stand in opposition to the word of God? Isn't he kind and patient and tolerant with you? Go back to the verse. He actually says, doesn't this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that it's his, it's his kindness intended to turn you from your sin? NIV says it's just kindness that turns us to repentance. And I can promise you the majority of people in this room actually believe that it's his judgment that turns people to repentance. You actually believe it's his judgment. You know this verse. I've read this verse to you before. And that's like, that's great, Matt. What a great verse. But you walk out of here and you live your life with the absolute worldview that it is God's judgment and wrath and condemnation that will turn people back to him. Which is why we get to this point <laughs> and we're like, okay, God. Like, you want us to be kind and patient and tolerant? No. We've been tolerant enough. Bring on the wrath. We've been patient long enough. Bring on the judgment. You want us to be kind with people who have clear agendas? How do we speak the truth in love and yet stand in firm? in disagreement, stand firm in convictions that come from the truth source, the absolute truth source in our life. How do we do it? How do we speak the truth in love, expressing kindness, tolerance, and patience while standing firm in disagreement to an opposing belief? Or as we would say, an opposing truth to their truth source. If you're not sitting there asking how in the world do we do that, 
then you don't plan on doing anything. You plan on changing nothing at all. But if you look at this and you say, well, Matt, that's just a couple scriptures. How in the world am I supposed to do that? How in the world do we do it? It feels impossible. We don't know where to start. And quite honestly, you know, as I was praying through this, it's not even what anybody wants. Like culturally, nobody really wants this. If you don't agree with me, I'd rather you oppose me. Why? Because your opposition only fuels my victimization. Your opposition and ostracization and, 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 and pushing me to the outskirts only fuels my cause. Because my story about how wrongly I was treated by the church will be shared so much more on social media than your story about how you tried to figure out how to speak this in love to me. Because that's the world we live in. Nobody wants this. Except God. Except the author and finisher of our faith, except for the author of our true source. How in the world do we do it? The answer, short answer, Jesus. You like that? You like that Sunday school answer? Doesn't that make everybody feel better? That's right, Dan. It's the right answer. Short answer is, listen, did you think it was going to be easy? I mean, why would, if you could do this on your own, why would you need Jesus? You think it was going to be like a quick saying that could just shut it all down? You could win every argument? You think I'm going to give you a Bible verse that's going to just, you could put it in your email signature and be like, yep, totally solved that one. <laughs> shut that one down. Oh, no, it's... It's going to require a whole lot more than that. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the examples of how Jesus did. Because listen, guys, the author of our truth source, he became flesh for you and for me. The author of our truth source doesn't, is not some spirit that doesn't understand. He goes on in Hebrews to tell us he, he walked in our shoes. He feels our feelings. He's faced the same temptations we've faced. He knows what it is to be us and yet fully God. That's who our truth source is. So we're going to look at what does it mean to be more and more like Jesus when we approach these topics, when we talk about these things. Because they're not going to be easy to talk about. How do we do that? short answer is Jesus. The little bit longer answer, I'll close with this. The little bit longer answer is some words that Jesus said. He was telling the crowd, including his disciples, but to, you know, when he talks to the crowd, just consider yourself part of the crowd. Okay? Luke's, Luke shares this and gives us like, Jesus is just talking to us. And he says, if anybody of you wants to be my follower, you know what that means? It means disciple. That's what all of Christians were called early on. It was disciples. It was people who were followers of Jesus. They chose to follow the example of Jesus. They chose to follow and do what he did, say what he said, live the way he called them to live. That's what a disciple was. There was no such thing as a Christian early on. 
That was what we called Christian in terms of the followers of Christ. They were followers. They were disciples. He says, if anyone wants to be a disciple, my follower, it says you're going to have to give up your own way. He says, you're going to have to put away the fact that you think you're smarter than God and that you've got a better way to do this. You have to put aside and put away all the clever arguments and quick little tri- tricks and little, you know, scientific methods and your other sources of truth that, that you think are going to catch people in the, in the moment and you're going to be able to convince them in that moment that you're right and they're wrong. You got you to put that down. If you want to be my follower, you got you to put aside your own way. And, he goes on to say, and you got to take up your cross. I don't think we have the, we don't have the language, to be honest, to understand what Jesus truly meant. Because when Jesus said this to them, it was as clear as day that it was the most sacrificial thing they were going to do with their life. To take up your cross as in the thing that goes and crucifies you, kills you? That's the kind of sacrifice you want us to make? Yeah. Jesus said, you're going to be my follower, you're going to be my disciple, and you've got to put down your way. Your way of doing things, your way of thinking, your way of approaching things, your clever little ways. And you're going to have to sacrifice to that degree. And then here's, listen, here's where it gets really clear. You've got to take up your cross daily. Oh, man. Don't we wish this was just a set it and forget it, you know, thing, right? Don't you wish this just didn't just cut baked into salvation like we got saved and just supernaturally, automatically, I'm totally selfless, you know? But Jesus is looking at you and me and the crowd, and he says, yeah, you're going to have to give up that way, and you're going to have to sacrifice in ways you just really don't want to. And you're going to have to make the choice to do it every single day. And then, of course, she said, and then follow me. Follow me. Do the things I've called you to do. Say the things I've called you to say. Approach this the way I want you to approach it. And he goes on to say this, which, again, goes back to a big, big part of just driving, because he knows who we are. He goes on to say this. No, not yet. There you go. He says, look, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you're trying to hang on to your life, if, it's, if at any point this becomes about you, you're going to lose. Oh, you might win the argument. You might mic drop on the social media post. Don't you like those moments sometimes? When you say something on social media, you're like, take that. But the moment it becomes about you, you're going to lose. Again, you may not feel like you lost. You may have won the argument. You may have won the moment, but you're losing the big picture. You're losing what God wants you to do. And it says, but if you give up your life for, me, for my sake, you're going to save it. 
Again, talking, trying to encourage us. This is the best way forward, man. This is what I want you to do. This is what you're called to do. And we're going to approach the next several weeks in some really heavy stuff, and we're going to constantly come back to the truth source that we're called to live and look up to, and we're going to go back to how we're called to approach it in terms of speaking the truth in love, in terms of understanding his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, yet understanding why we stand firm in confidence of what we believe and our convictions of, of our truth source. And we're going to, I'm telling you, we're going to constantly fight this battle of going back to our way, going back to what's about, just, it's going to be about us. We already know that's true. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Matt, but what about, okay, this is what's coming in the text thread right now. This is what's coming, this is what's coming emailed and texted to me, right? But what about that horrible, evil, awful agenda of that community? I mean, like, what about what they want to do to our kids? What about, what about those things? I got this to say to you. Come back next week. <laughs> okay. Matt, what about, what about the evil and the... And the what, yeah, come back next week. What about, Matt, what about our silence being complicit in these horrible, horrible... I, I, come back next week. I I understand. And we are going to get there, I promise. But we have to start here. You have to start with where your truth source really is. And what worldview you're actually working from. If you don't start here, if it doesn't start with all Scripture is God-breathed and it teaches us what's right and wrong, we're going to lose. You're going to lose everything he's called you to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, God, just, again, the way in which your word challenges us not to approach today's conversation in today's framework. That we do not need to get lost in the relativistic culture that we are surrounded by. That God, by your grace, you have given us truth. You've given us a truth source that we can build convictions in, that we can put confidence in, that we can stand firm in even when we disagree with those around us. And yet, God, we need your spirit to be able to speak truth in love. We cannot do it on our own. It is, there is nothing natural, God, about us being kind or patient or tolerant of those who stand in opposition to us and to your word. And yet, God, we have to remember how you look at us. We have to remember how you, even through Christ, treated us. That it was your kindness and your grace and your mercy that brings us to repentance, that brings us to you. God, just help us. By your spirit, as we wrestled this week, even seeing things come across our, our social media page or conversation with friends, just help us begin this week to start here. Start in understanding what you've called us to do and how you've called us to approach it as we move forward in this place. God, let us walk out of here more and more like you. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.